This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This week, we are kicking off a special series of Technically Human focused on the intersection of democracy and tech. Our first episode in the series features Dr. Fouad Khoshmoud. Dr. Khoshmoud is the Forbes Professor of Computer Engineering and an Associate Professor of Computer Science at California Polytechnic State University. His research interests include natural language processing, or NLP, artificial intelligence, interactive entertainment, game AI, and game jams. At Cal Poly, Professor Hoshmud usually teaches AI, interactive entertainment, computational linguistics, data mining, and operating systems, and more. He serves as the faculty advisor for the Cal Poly Game Development, or CPGD, to SLO Hats and to color-coded student clubs. He is the founder of the Digital Democracy Project, a platform that seeks to use digital technologies to make government more transparent, one video at a time. And he is the lead researcher on a new project at the Cal Poly Institute for Advanced Technology and Public Policy to strengthen democracy by developing an artificial intelligence system that will expand and improve state government coverage at local and regional media outlets, an area of journalism that has especially suffered amid the economic slide of the news industry. Dr. Koshmud is the Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Technology and Public Policy. He is also a board member, former CTO and past president of Global Game Jam, Inc., where he helps to organize the world's largest game creation activity, which includes more than 120 countries. He is also the general chair of the Foundation of Digital Games, a major international Big Tent academic conference dedicated to exploring the latest research in all aspects of digital games and to increase diversity and inclusion in the world of computing. Hi, Fouad. How are you? I'm well. Very excited for this conversation. So just to get us started, I wanted to pick up on what I saw as a common thread running through your work and your projects. And that is really the attention that you pay to the ethic of making information and technology accessible to everybody, kind of equal opportunity access. Why is accessibility important to you? And why should we as a larger society care about that kind of equal opportunity access? Yeah, uh, a great question. So, you know, I, I don't know when it happened that I became interested in in this topic uh, as far as like, you know, citizen accessibility to crucial information that is, uh, you know, necessary to run a good society. But I have been interested in it in a very long time. Uh, I was a student activist and I kind of understand the leverage uh, that, that citizens have to be able to get, you know, their voices heard and their their issues uh, uh, and concerns paid attention to, and so this particular sort of uh, latest phase came when I was I became familiar with the Institute for Advanced Technology and Public Policy, which was a brand new institute that was founded here at Cal Poly by an ex-legislator, a, a state representative and senator who represented this area in the California state government. His name is Sam Blakesley. After he retired, he decided to have this institute. And one of the main things he was concerned with was government transparency. And so really with the help of his chief of staff, a woman named Christine Robertson, who has been invaluable and kind of like the brains behind many of the operations here, 
uh, we came up with projects to increase citizen citizen knowledge and and government transparency in California. And this project seemed really interesting to me. It seemed like there was already a disbalance in that lots of powerful figures in in society have access to legislators much easier with a lot of resources than most citizens do. People have lobbyists or could be corporations have lobbyists. They know how things work. They are they have lobbyists who who go to Sacramento to go to the capitals and they're there all the time and they kind of they understand how the system works. And the average citizen really doesn't. And the average citizen is kind of like kind of uh, shut out of the situation. And this was the case for a very long time. But it recently became even more exacerbated because we lost the local news industry. The local news industry has been has been devastated. Uh, so this is, you know, corporate consolidations and the Internet and a whole bunch of other factors have basically taken off local news. Uh, local news is just the shell of what it used to be. And because of that, we don't have a lot of local news present in the capital and so we don't really get a lot of news from the capital, a lot of uh, a lot of information from the capital. Add to that the very curious fact that California doesn't actually produce a record of the proceedings in Sacramento. And this was very odd to me because I figured the whole thing was written down and I could go take a look at it, but actually never is produced by anyone. And this isn't just California. Every state does it this way. No state actually has an official record of what was being discussed. There is one for the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate, but not for the state governments. And this was a huge gap because without this and without news coverage, people really don't know what's going on. People have no idea what is being said and what is being passed and what claims are being made and everything. And so our initial foray into addressing this problem was just making this information available. And we used a lot of tools to be able to do it cheaply, but we couldn't do it cheaply enough. And anyway, I don't, I don't know how, how deeply we want to go into the specific projects, digital democracy and AI for reporters. But essentially, you know, my personal interest here is that uh, this is an interesting technical problem. It has broad social implications, and it's something that is on very few people's radar. And so this is a, this is a good challenge to me to try to address. Well, I'm interested in what you just said at the end there, which is that it's an interesting technical problem. Why is it an interesting technical problem? What makes it a technical problem? Well, this should not be a technical problem. People should be living in a society where they have time that they can actually participate in government, they, that their local and state governments need to be more participatory and people need to be in an economic condition that have the kind of time and resources to be able to directly participate. So that's the ideal. However, we are far from that, just various reasons that will probably fill a few other episodes of your podcast. But at the moment, we are at a situation where the resources that are necessary to put human beings, reporters into the capital to try to get the full picture that the citizens deserve are not available and will not be available under this system. And so what is the next best thing that can be done? The next best thing that can be done, in our opinion, is to have the information be available for the citizens and help the reporters, the few reporters that do have access and resources and can be sponsored, help them be more efficient in what they do. And so that's why it's a technical problem. So let's talk about your technical solution to the technical problem, which was the platform that you built, Digital Democracy at Cal Poly. What is digital democracy? How did you try and solve this technical problem by building this platform? 
it started with the fact that the records were not available. And after the initial shock of that actually being the case in 21st century, we decided to make the records available. So really, the main thing that digital democracy did was allow this information to be available, to be accessible, to be searchable, to be alertable, and also to be cross-referenceable because you have tons of other information from across the strata of government and non-government organizations that produce information that aren't sort of talking together. They don't have a single database or a common language. Okay, let me give you an example. So the thing that's not available is the actual record. So if we make the records, that is the transcripts of what, what is being said, right? The transcripts of what is being said in official public meetings. These are public meetings, so everyone has a right to actually hear them, right? If you were there, if you could afford to be there in person and sit, sit in committee rooms like 40 hours a week, you would hear all of them, right? But you don't, right? And we don't even have, we can't even afford to send reporters there. So we want to take those records and make them available, make them written transcripts for them available. And that's what we did. That's the first thing that we did. But after you have the written transcripts available, we need to put it in context for people who are reading it because I can I can see what was said, like if I had closed captioning, which we don't even have closed captioning. But if there was closed captioning on, on videos and I could even see that what is being said, I, I see all the words and I can search through all the words. I still need to know something about who said it. And then I need some background information about who that person is, like what district do they represent? Who has donated to them? What is their legislative history? What is their voting record? What is their staff's involvements? What gifts have they received? Official gifts or registered in the state of California. What you know, behests have they made? And what have they done? What has their staff done, right? Because that's also all, all public information. Uh, the people who are there speaking as experts, what is their history? Uh, are they a lobbyist? Are they registered lobbyists? Have they done lobbying work before? Have they been a legislator before? Because that happens a lot. You know, what do we know about them? The uh, issues that are being brought up, have those issues, have they been brought up before? Have there been bills like this before? What happened like three years ago when a similar bill showed up and didn't pass or it was met with, with problems? These are information that a good investigative reporter could could extract really easily. But the problem is we're going to need something like 200 investigative reporters in Sacramento. And last I checked, we have and this is not a this is not an exaggeration. We have a grand total of three reporters that are assigned to Sacramento as a beat. So this is a serious problem. So we decided to put all of that information together in one giant database. This is a database that never has existed before because all these different things, for example, like the donation information and the, the district information and the transcripts had never been sort of like cross-referenceable before. So we put this all in a database. We had maybe 30 different streams of information flowing into the database. And then we had a front end where people could go search on the issues that they're interested in and look at the videos and look at the transcripts, look at the audio, look at the history, all that stuff. And uh, we started doing this for California. And then pretty soon we received some grants to continue doing it for other states. So we did it for Texas, we did it for New York, and we did it for Florida. So by late 2018, we were basically providing one third of the United States with the most complete state records that they never had access to anywhere else. How does the technology work? Because I'm interested in this idea that it harnesses machine learning, face, voice, and text recognition, all of these different dimensions, or search in order to identify legislative content. How does that come together? How does that work? What is the kind of blend of technologies that you put together? 
A lot of it is really not, uh, it's, it's not so much cutting edge. We have a large database, and this database has a lot of raw information that comes into it from these various records that, we, that I mentioned to you, like things from the Secretary of State, things from non-governmental organizations, voting records, donation records, things like that. And then to this, we're adding our own produced transcripts that we actually do from videos. Videos are available. You can look at videos, and you can watch videos from a certain date and a certain hearing. But what you don't have is the, is the transcript. So we produce transcripts from videos. Now, just doing that by itself is a technical challenge because as you probably have some experience with, and most people do, I teach natural language processing, which is part of the reason I I was chosen for this. There's no such thing as perfect transcript that is done automatically. And if you want to have a person do it like they do in the United Nations, right? They just write down everything people say and translate it live and everything. Well, that would be prohibitively expensive. So what we did was we came up with a system that took a baseline AI transcribed audio feed And then to that, it added some information to be able to make it better. And then at the end, we actually didn't rely entirely on on, on tech. We actually even had Cal Poly students double check at the very end to make sure that the the transcript was correct. As a result, we had the most accurate transcript that was possible that any tech could produce. Now, during the transcript, one of the things that we need to know is who is speaking. So who is speaking is a challenging problem because sometimes that person's face is not on video and sometimes they're you know off camera or we don't know who they are or maybe they are on video but we've never we don't know their face right and uh, so what we need, what we did was we used computers to try to f- do face recognition on people on the video and so whoever was speaking on the video we used face recognition but that's not perfect either because again videos would cut away and things like that and people would be speaking and the video would be on someone else's face all kinds of all kinds of technical challenges so we also did audio we also did text we came up with this process called voice face text VFT transcription where it basically enhanced transcription with uh, identifying the speakers uh, and so that's one dimension of using machine learning and technology to try to get this better. Another dimension is we wanted to write, we didn't, we didn't just want to write down the information. We also wanted to see if we can characterize it. Is what is being said currently in support of a bill or is it in, opposed to a bill? Is it arguing for a yes vote or a no vote or an abstention or something like that? And we had students be able to write this down as well. And so when we had a first cohort of students that could annotate this technology, annotate the transcripts. We could use machine learning to try to understand it ourselves and actually predict what they're going to be in the future. So we experiment with a lot of that as well. And so to summarize it, basically, think of it like this. We have lots of raw information coming in. So a first technical challenge really was sort of interoperating between all this information. But very soon after that, we needed to use this raw information to produce higher order information. Like, for example, what is someone's stance or how do they feel about it? Or are they angry or are they upset? Things like that. That you can't just tell, you know, it's not written down anywhere, right? Maybe a human could tell if they were watching, but can a computer tell? So then where the real sort of AI came in was to try to use the original source material 
to try to get more information for the benefit of the uh, of the citizen. I mean, this is fascinating to me. This is a very complex configuration of many different technologies, and the amount of information that you bring together is vast and impressive. But I guess my question here is about the larger cluster of problems surrounding democracy right now in the United States and how we get, go about solving those problems. Because as I understand it, the core idea, or at least one core idea in digital democracy is to allow people to organize and understand through these technologies information about how legislators are framing or talking about or taking stances on or voting about important pieces of legislation. And I, I, get, I get the case that the access to clear information is an important civic problem. That lack of access to that kind of information is an important civic problem. But to my mind, the prior problem for democracy is not that folks can't access information. It's that they don't access information. It's that people oftentimes don't have the time, as you said, or prior to that, the civic education to know what government does or that folks oftentimes choose to vote in ways that are not related to the policies that they care about, but rather alongside ideological positions. That's a situation that doesn't result from people having or not having information about policies. It's a situation that results from the deterioration or the elimination of education about how to think critically, civically, or meaningfully. It's a condition that results from the lack of time to pursue information and to assess information, not the lack of information. So the problem, at least as I see it, isn't really about the lack of information or the lack of access to information. After all, in the internet age, we have more information than ever before. And I argue fewer people who are interested in engaging in that information meaningfully than ever before. So the problem is a, a kind of lack of a certain form of literacy or interest in a kind of literacy. If we can't fix the literacy, can we really benefit from the information? Well, the first thing I need to say is that you're absolutely right. It's not simply uh, access to information. It's a whole gamut of social issues, as you mentioned. It's literacy, it's time, it's, it's you know, work balance, it's priorities, it's what kind of values we get from the media, what's important, what's not important. So you're right about all of that. I do still think that without access to information, that is to say the access to information isn't sufficient, but it is a necessary part to get it done. And the second thing I need, I, I, I want to say is that this is a can of worms, as you, as you, as you know, this, this is a huge problem. But there, is, there are gradations, right? There are people like you yourself, for example, or me. Uh, we probably we don't have time to be listening to like C-SPAN 24/7 to see what's they're, what they're saying about our rights or our our you know schools and all the laws that are passing and everything. It's true we don't, but we do engage, right? We do have some engagement, and maybe not the most efficient way of engaging. Maybe it is not the most informed way of engaging, as informed as it could be. And and of course there are people who are more informed than people who are less informed, right? But how can we make the time that we do have most efficient? How can we we the participation that we can and afford how can that be the most informed as it can be right so there is there is that because i feel like there is a huge gap you're right in general people don't have the time to really be paying attention to government because they're working and they're doing other things but there is a lot of people who do have the time to be commenting do have the time to be engaging in social media right and so there is that time and so maybe there maybe we can do something better with that time maybe we can we can have some more you know intelligent more informed debates with the time that we do have, that we do control. Bigger issue, I think I might have to leave it to professors like yourself in the liberal arts to try to figure out. 
<laughs> but the part that I that I'm interested in solving is is to make more things more efficient. And uh, the second thing I want to say is that you are absolutely right. I mean, this is the realization that we ourselves came into after digital democracy because we had digital democracy going. It really, literally, hundred percent was the only way to get the information that we had. There was no other way you could get it, right? So it was. We thought this was a great thing, and everybody would flock to it. But very few people did flock to it. I mean, first of all, because we had no advertising budget or anything like that. But secondly, it's because of what you said. People don't people don't find it valuable. People don't know that it's important, and people haven't had that that civic literacy. Interestingly, we got a lot of a lot of people from inside government looking at it. They were very happy with it. The even people like people doing in law enforcement who were trying to track down like illegal donations and stuff like that never had a database like this. Were really really happy about it. But we never got that citizen engagement. So this kind of led us to our second project, a follow-on project of sorts, which is this wire service. So the idea was this, maybe the raw direct information, we're not the people to try to make that interesting, or we don't know how, or we tried and it didn't work. But there is a medium that people have used for hundreds of years to try to get that information. That is the that is the newspapers, that is the media, that is TV reports. There is the journalism, right? The, journal, the entire journalism industry has been something that people have relied on historically to get them accurate information. So our second idea was going back to the back to the drawing table and saying, all right, let's make that industry better. Let's try to help them because they presumably have more interest and more expertise in trying to get this to the to the mass media. So our, our second product, AI for Reporters, is basically geared towards media. And it's, uh, it's, it's trying to make them more efficient by giving them the info that they would normally spend, you know, a couple of days trying to gather all at once. And then they could see it and then they could see if it interests them. And then if it does, they could write a story about it. So this is the project that you were talking about to address the three Sacramento Bee reporters who were supposed to be covering the entirety of the news circuit. Well, yeah, what, what I meant was that there's three. It's not that there's three Sacramento Bee reporters. There's more than three Sacramento Bee reporters. But there are three wire service reporters that are assigned to Sacramento. Got it. That's their beat is to look at Sacramento. There is a, a press room uh, over in Sacramento, just like there is like, you know, at the White House or at the at the Capitol. And it has, I don't know, maybe like 200 seats. And routinely, there is only like two or three people sitting there. So I want to see if I understand this prototype correctly. The prototype, as I understand it, is a newswire service. I'm just quoting here from the project, where narrative content covering state legislators is automatically generated from primary data sources and can be distributed to local and regional news organizations for publication. I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit directly about the structure of the project, what it looks like in reality, and how maybe people are using it as you understand it right now. People aren't really using it because it is a prototype and we don't have live information anymore. We used to have the live information with the Digital Democracy Project where we would every day we would get all the transcripts and, and use AI to get them and everything. We don't have that. This is a prototype to show that if we had that, it could work. That That is, we could get timely tip sheets to news organizations and reporters that subscribe to it to get it, right? And that's the that was the project. So the idea is this. We have all this data that was sitting in our database that previously was just available for people to go to the website and do searches and things like that, right? What can we do to automatically surface interesting or anomalous things that have happened based on all this data that we have? 
write a report about it, about what we saw, along with a, a tip sheet, which has just some interesting things that come up. For example, somebody votes against their party. That's supposed to be a rare thing, right? If that happens, maybe there's some interest there. So we could generate a tip sheet that says like, this person just voted against their party. Here's their entire history. Here's the issue that they voted against. Here's how everybody else did and so on. Uh, maybe somebody got into a very contentious back and forth discussion argument inside of one of the one of the committee hearings because of a certain person who was there and they were they got into an argument. We can detect that and we could send that to the to the reporters to say this is what happened. And reporters they could they could look at the tip sheet and say, all right, well maybe I can investigate this further. I have lots of local angle and things like that that we don't have access to that they could put on this. They could go back to primary sources, watch the video of that event. So in other words, think of it as ways of automatically surfacing interesting things that could be useful to reporters so that they don't have to spend all the time trying to trying to get those themselves because they can't physically be in all the committee rooms in Sacramento all at once. So that's the idea. So we generate a tip sheet. We started out by thinking that we're going to generate a full article. But very quickly, we realized we don't want to write a full article. We want to write a tip sheet because we want the reporter to write the article. So that's what we're doing now. And tell me, why don't you want to write the article? Why do you want the reporter to still write the article? What's the difference that you see or maybe the ethic that you see between those two things? There is both, actually. Um, I, I'm not interested in replacing reporters uh, with any of these AI tools or anything like that. I, I don't. This isn't about like doing something automating a job that used to exist. When originally we thought that we could also write along with the tip sheet a narrative, uh, that is to say a, a summarized account of the events in that particular uh, hearing that we found interesting, the idea was that here's some language sort of like normally this language is the kind of thing that we read in newspapers. For example, they quote somebody uh, or they talk about somebody's background and stuff like that. We could just like write sentences about that. And the, the news reporter could look at that and include it perhaps into a story that they have. You know, there's a, there's a lot of automated journalism already. For example, probably most weather stories you read is automatically written. Lots of uh, financial stories, stocks went up, down, this one, this one stock, you know, led the way and uh, so on. Lots of sports stories are automatic already. And so there's like lots of feeds where very short kind of, they're not comparable to in-depth uh, investigative journalism, but they're just like sort of a retelling of the event in natural language. So we could have a feed like that, but really the more important part is that this would be a starting point for a reporter to write a more in-depth article. And frankly, we don't have all the information a reporter has or usually puts in. Most important being, for example, a local angle. We don't know what's happening in that community. We don't know what else has been going on. We can tell, like, for example, if somebody represents San Luis Obispo and we could send them information about their representatives, what they said in Sacramento. But we don't know what else is happening in Sacramento, because, in San Luis Obispo, because we're not, reading, we're not reading those sources. That reporter that is from San Luis Obispo can bring in the local angle. So we would have a much better product if it was written by the reporter. Yeah, I get, I'm very interested in this dimension. You know, I've been following automated reporting for a while now, and it's something that really interests me because it rests on a certain premise, which is that, first of all, facts are neutral. And second of all, that reporting on facts is the same thing as facts. In literary studies, which is my discipline, we, we tend to agree that facts are facts, that facts are real, that facts are neutral, but, but reports are never just facts, right? This is what you were talking about. They're contextual. 
contextually dependent. Reporters give in literary studies what we call narratives in the sense of, not in the sense of facts being fault that they're reporting on, but in the sense of making decisions about which facts to report on and how to frame the meaning of those facts. For example, it's a fact. It's a fact that on January 6th, a group of people showed up at the U.S. Capitol and entered it by force. All of that is factual. But the concept that this was, for example, an assault on democracy or the concept that this was an insurrection or that the people who went there intended to overturn the election is an interpretation. Those are not facts. Those are reports about the facts. Those are narratives about the facts that we call reports. That's not to say that any of those things are wrong or controversial interpretations, only that interpreting them in that way, reporting in that way, requires somebody to select those facts, for example, of worthy uh, about reporting in the first place, or what we call significant or newsworthy. And second of all, to arrange them into a claim so as to show why they are significant, for example, for our democracy. So the idea of newsworthiness in and of itself is not the same thing as, for example, something being, you know, engaging or viral or relevant, which can be true without something actually being newsworthy. A, a cat video is engaging and viral and relevant without being uh, newsworthy. And reproducing the facts that somebody else interprets and embeds in, I think, a report is also, I think, an interpretive problem, what we would call, I think, the work of reporters. So I'm interested here to think about the ways in which your platform and your work is engaging in framing these interpretive questions and the ways in which they enhance them or change the uh, lens of interpretation. So I guess I, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between this approach and how we would think about the idea of what we call newsworthy information in general and how we understand the nature of interpretation changing with these new technological tools. I couldn't disagree with anything you said. You're right that much of it, you know, is editorialization. Lots of reporting, especially headline writing, has become, you know, almost misleading because because of engagement and things like that that news organizations are after rather than rather than uh, just, you know, quote unquote objective reporting of the events. I guess we are doing our best or we try to do our best to tie any statement, any single statement that is made in our product to be directly tied to a source material that is original, firsthand source material. And that's mostly the video. If you read a lot of reporting from, from state houses, a lot of times it's a matter of just they're saying what someone else said. They're, they're simply quoting the lawmaker or the witness or some uh, legislative aide or something like that. Of course, there's tons of human decision making that goes into that. Who do you quote? Who do you don't quote? Who do you, uh, you know, interview and what, what background facts you put in? Obviously, everybody knows that. That is an issue that, as you said before, we need probably civic education to overcome. We simply don't want to add to that by adding any kind of editorialization ourselves. What we want to do is literally report things that we've seen on video, statistics that are verifiable. The, it's funny because the, um, the Knight Foundation, uh, our main sponsor, the original product that we showed them, the prototype that we showed them very early on in the project uh, last year, we had a citation after every sentence in the report. And, hit, and the, the, the Knight Grant officer's first comment was that 
who wants all these citations? That's too many. That's a lot of citations, <laughs> you know. And news news reports don't have that many citations. They they go based on the reputation of the outfit and and the person who's writing them, which is all up to up to debate and everything, obviously. But yes, we try to have every single statement be fully cited, and so so we have direct information like things that are being said, and then we have things, for example, of saying that this person tends not to vote with Republicans. Statement like that. Well. How do we do that? We will have a little tip sheet. You click on it and it says, this is how we calculated this. Over the last two cycles, 90% of the time, this person did not vote with Republicans. That's the reason we're saying this, you know, this statement. So very light sort of statistical and fact-based summative statements are there. But in general, we try to stay away from saying anything like this was an insurrection or whatever, like things like that, that are, as you mentioned, uh, interpreted. So I and I really think every technologist, everybody in this industry contributing to any kind of product needs to be well aware of this, have everything be completely sourceable and allow people to scrutinize not just the fact that you said something, that you reported something, but the method in which led you to do it. We're heading into an election year this year, and right now, as we've talked about, we we're chatting uh, before this, and you mentioned that digital democracy as a platform is down, but that it might be revived. Do you see people using the platform as we're heading into this year of elections? I might add that these are incredibly uh, important, incredibly game-changing elections. What are some of the interesting things you've discovered about how people actually use the technology? Who is using this technology? What are they doing with it? Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, not many end users were using it, and that was to our disappointment. However, so much has changed when we basically stopped recording live. And I mean, you take a look at a state like Georgia, for example. It went from being like a solid uh, Republican state to having this incredible election, off-cycle election, that had you know led to two two Democratic senators being elected for the first time, and and this basically was a game changer. And now we have lots of, for example, states, state houses passing laws about voting access and voting rights and things like that. And so lots of people are engaged that weren't before, like issue like issues that would be quietly sort of handle be handled in the back rooms in the state capitals about obscure things like election law were not in too many people's radar, on too many people's radar, but now they are. And so I see a lot more engagement simply because there's just that much more coverage from the national media about it and the implications of it are coming to the state media. Now we're concentrating on state media because we feel like the uh, federal government gets gets lots of scrutiny already. I don't mean scrutiny in that they're being held to account. They're not being held to account enough, in my opinion. But uh, just as a uh, normal course of corporate consolidation, which is one of the reasons we are in this situation, corporate consolidation means that if you buy up like, you know, 50 newspapers around the country, you can actually save a lot of money by feeding all of them the same Washington, D.C. news. And so therefore, they're not doing their local reporting as they were before. And this is a huge moneymaker for, for the uh, media industry. So they do spend all their time in Washington, D.C. That's part of the problem. So that's why we see that the state capitals are sort of being neglected for that. And things like voter voter rights um, are drivers of people being more interested in state capitals. So uh, we think, yes, it would be a lot more engaging uh, if you were to put it. However, we are going toward that second idea of enabling news organizations rather than directly marketing to end users. Although if we have, if it does go back live, as as you mentioned, 
the part of it that a citizen can come and take a look as well is going to be available. But we are heavily marketing. We are heavily trying to uh, revive it for the purpose of providing information for the AI for reporters piece. That is the the part that um, the newspapers will see. Ethics asks the question that I think sometimes technology asks is, how can we make the world better? How can we live in a way that is more classified as the good life? I think sometimes I also talk about ethics in, in the terms of what could or what should we do? Ethics is the place where we have to encounter the dilemma of what we ought to do. So ethics is a question of what we ought to do, or what we should do. And it seems to me like the platform, at least as you describe it, has both of those dimensions. It has a dimension of what a better world would look like, certainly in terms of our civic practices and in terms of a kind of civic openness. And on the other hand, it also has a kind of vision of what citizens should do, which is to say citizens should be engaging civically in the information. How do you understand that ethic, though? I don't want to speak over you or for you. Is there an ethic behind the platform? I guess for me, is a sense of injustice. I feel like there is a sense of injustice. Some people have access to information. Some people don't. That's, that to me is injustice. And this is a way for me to try to even the playing field for people who can't afford their own lobbyists, who, who don't have huge budgets and millions of dollars to try to influence uh, their, their favorite lawmakers. At the same time, there is a dimension. This is so. This is the government transparency dimension, which government transparency has never been that government is not transparent to everybody. The problem has always been that is government transparent to only a very few people who actually are in the inner circles and can afford to be there. People who can hire lobbyists, large corporations, insiders, uh, government contractors, people like that, right? Not the ordinary citizen. So trying to get the ordinary citizen that some semblance of the same access, or even or even the playing field a little bit. I guess it's a it's a little cynical now to think about it, but that was kind of one of the original promises of the internet or the web in general was that people would actually have even playing field in access to this information. So so that's one. That's that's the transparency aspect of it. The other aspect of it is accountability. Just in the the nature of the government that we have here in the United States, it, it sort of lends itself to lots of lawmakers trying to convey different messages to different people, to different constituencies, simply because that's the best theoretic approach to maximize uh, your electability and your longevity in office. What they require for that to happen is that these different groups don't find out what they've been promising to other groups and what they've been saying to other groups. And a situation like what we have here in Sacramento and most state capitals where nothing's actually being reported, nothing's being recorded, you can't go back and find out what someone has said, is perfect for them because they could, at the right moment, say something for a specific audience, maybe a powerful lobbyist or a constituency that they want to they want to message something to, and then record that segment of it and send it to them for the fundraiser and get their message across, but then say something else to somebody else. So that accountability has has suffered gravely with the with the, together with kind of like the destruction of local news. And so, uh, and that is one thing that we think we could address. And as proof of that, that that is something that is very much uh, kind of part of doing business in Sacramento and in most uh, state capitals, is that the opposition that we have faced in trying to do this has been remarkably bipartisan. Neither Democrats nor Republicans 
are really interested in having their statements be available for anyone to visit and look at. You might ask yourself, why, why wasn't the service already available? In some ways, it actually even violates ADA because you don't have, if you don't have um, closed captioning, then that means you're, you're violating ADA. And did, in California, they didn't have closed captioning until like two years ago. And even that's terrible. You know, it's all caps. And you don't know who said it. And there's mistakes and stuff like that. And maybe 48 states don't even have that. Why hasn't this happened? Why haven't they put the information in a, in a very accessible way already? Why haven't they built the database that we spent, you know, you know, three or four years and lots of maybe 70 to 100 students building. Why didn't they just do that? Why isn't that part of government already? And the reason is it's in their interest not to. It's in their interest to be in charge of their own messaging. And one of the things that we found out and recently we did a nationwide survey of newspaper reporters, not newspaper, but all kinds of media, newspapers, TV and, and um, radio who were interested in local and, and statewide reporting. And we did interviews with them and we had, we had surveys. It was almost alarming to hear how many of them find out about, about uh, stories they should cover from the legislators themselves. In other words... The, the, the method they use to find out what they should cover is a press release by a legislator. So if that legislator didn't think that press release would be beneficial to them, they wouldn't have had the press release. So which means there's tons of stories that are missing that they're not hearing about because, well, how could they? They're not there. Nobody's watching. That's, that's, the, that's the hole we hope to plug here. That's fascinating to me. I mean, this is a huge civic issue about how we discover what is newsworthy, how we can have access to that kind of information, and how legislators can manipulate all sorts of systems, including the news system, in order to benefit from it in, in all sorts of uh, productive ways. And, and as you were talking, I was getting very curious about the kind of larger ethic that governs your work, because we've only had time today to talk about one very small sliver of your work, with, which is the this uh, dimension of uh, democracy and accessibility. But looking at the broader framework of your research, what I've noticed and what has become clear to me in this conversation is that accessibility on a number of different registers is something that seems very pivotal to you. I, I think that we could say that a number of your projects are pivoted around questions of accessibility. So maybe we can broaden that ethical question up a little bit further to talk about the broader structure and constellation of your work. What ethic do you think that your work embodies? Is it equitable access to technology or information? Is it equitable access in general, an ethic of data, democracy itself? How would you describe it? Well, you know, before today, I probably wouldn't have put accessibility as a buzzword or like a research area for myself. But, uh, you know, uh, you have a good point. I mean, it, it is very close to a lot of lot of different projects that I'm involved in. It's just that accessibility kind of has a very technical definition in, in computer science, uh, and um, you know, it's mostly about user interfaces, right? And and those are part of the story here. But I think you mean it in a broader sense, and I, I also I also emphasize it in a broader sense. So yes, I mean, I I, I suppose uh, availability of opportunity to a broad cross-section of people is something I'm very passionate about. There is a nonprofit that I'm involved in called the Global Game Jam. Uh, Global Game Jam is a three-day, one part of my research is on video games. And you'd be, you'd be really, uh, I think it might be interesting to you and your listeners that there are lots of overlaps between uh, video games and with uh, the work that, uh, that I'm doing in democracy. And there's just very fascinating uh, artifacts in my opinion, but that's just a distraction for now. A, a Global Game Jam is a, um, a game creation event, like a hackathon, where people get together in small groups and they make games and they show up in 
in different locations. They sign up on a website that we created. If you go to globalgamejam.org, you might see some of that. And then they basically spend about 48 hours making games. And then they upload those games to the central repository at Global Game Jam. And that's available for anyone to see open source. And it's been a great, rewarding experience for me. I started it when I was a grad student myself. And now it's been going strong for, you know, uh, since 2009. And it's in about 120 countries. And people are meeting uh, every year, maybe 50,000 people or so around the globe. Usually the last weekend of January, they get together and they do these things. And um, what's been really interesting to me is a couple of things. One, the access that it provides for people as a low stress and low entrance to barrier, low barrier to entrance um, way of getting into STEM. STEM usually is, can be very intimidating for a lot of students, especially students who haven't grown up with a kind of privileged background to have computers around the house and stuff like that. I was like that. I never had a computer. And, and to get students like that to be interested, it can be very intimidating if, they, if they're dumped into like, you know, computer science 101 and they have to have this very sort of alien language that they have to learn and lots of things. So lots of messages from society is telling them, this is not for you. You're not smart enough. You haven't done this. You haven't, you haven't, your dad hasn't been like Silicon Valley programmer. So you can't, uh, you can't hack it here. And going into something like Global Game Jam, where lots of games are video games that are, that are made by coding and seeing that, that social aspect of things, seeing that acceptance and seeing that um, that reward that comes with it that you might not see if you enroll in a computer science program, you might be doing things that you don't really connect with what computers can do for maybe two or three years until you see like like higher level kind of like products is actually very rewarding and very interesting. And we've got a lot of a lot of good feedback about people being interested in STEM uh, through game game development and global game jam specifically. Second, there's lots of countries around the world where the tech industry is unavailable because of sanctions, U.S. sanctions. And I've been a large advocate, I've been a big advocate against U.S. sanctions for a long time, back when we had um, sanctions against Iraq, which caused lots of devastation in the, in the late 90s, and then later on against Iran. And it's really interesting to see that how the camaraderie in the global community allows them to participate and still be part of the community and be able to uh, be, be productive and get past those barriers anyway with everybody else's help. And so, so we've had, for example, sites in Afghanistan. We've had sites in Iran have been there for a very long time, even though Iran's under heavy sanctions. Cuba, Venezuela, places like that are part of the global game job. The words ethical technology or ethics and technology are right now buzzwords. And I'm curious what you have seen in terms of shift toward ethics and technology from, from your position teaching and thinking about tech and thinking and teaching uh, STEM. Has the idea of ethics become more prominent? How have you seen it change and develop over a you know, decade or so? It absolutely has become more prominent. I myself, when I was a student here at Cal Poly, the idea was that technology is neutral. And this was very, very much kind of like something people didn't even think about. It's like, oh, if a computer has determined that, you know, A is B, then A must be B, you know, uh, there's no, there's no questioning it. Although, obviously, what was developed in that whatever program it was that told you the answer was heavily influenced by the programmer, not just by the programmer, but by the data that you fed into the program. And so this wasn't really immediately obvious to people until I think maybe like a decade ago, where people started talking about all the possible 
ramifications for um, technology doing unethical things simply because it's been informed by unethical data, unethical programmers, or programmers who have been neglectful in that department, haven't spent the time to try to imagine and understand the consequences of their of their decision making. So we've had, you know, in the recent years, lots of lots of Silicon Valley companies be interested, at least for public relations purposes, be very much interested in trying to um, have like ethics boards, uh, looking at their looking at the products to see what kind of consequences they would lead to, and at least sort of like spending, you know, putting out putting out grants and spending media time trying to to address this. I mean, it's it's a a little bit of a CYA, obviously, from their perspective, but um, it does it, it it is a hopeful sign, in my opinion, because you know we didn't even have that uh, twenty years ago, and so add to this the whole issue of machine learning. So we have large language models and a large language model basically is like it's like saying all the websites in the world put together in one model that's really what it is you know they 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 get the information from all the websites and uh, they maybe do some light kind of filtering on it and then everything is learned from all the information that's available and you know there is actually a separate ethic there when we can get into some other program or some other time if you like about is it ethical to actually use all that information because they don't basically came from other people's labor? Google became a really big company. You know, Google maybe was the pioneer of using data as a data that people have produced as a as as a something that could be productized and monetized. So yeah, so there is you know there is that aspect of it. But basically, because there because it reflects a particular set of source material. It can be biased. And for a long time, Silicon Valley thought that this was a kind of a, uh, you know, um, a golden egg in that because the technology was was such that you could take great advantage of, of this data, like big data processing and data mining. They didn't have to do the hard work in trying to figure out what parts of it they really should be using and what parts of it they shouldn't be using. And this actually gave them a lot of profits. Not having to do this part gave them a lot of profits. Another example, very similar, is online forums like uh, like in Facebook and Reddit and places like that. Well, at the beginning, there was very little to no moderation because moderation costs money. It's a lot. It's very expensive to do it right and to try to, for example, be on top of what's happening in the community and try to try to impose some kind of decency standard or some standard like that. And so they saved a lot of money by not having to do that early on. That profit now is going to be mitigated by the fact that the as a society, people are demanding it. People are demanding these spaces to have some kind of standard. And because of that, they're reluctant. Obviously, they don't want to do it. They don't want to hire hundreds of thousands of people to do moderation. That costs them money. That's the bottom line. You know, nobody wants to do it. The Silicon Valley investors don't want that, but they're being forced to. And I think that's a good thing, too. What does the idea of ethical technology mean for you, especially but not exclusively in the context of your work at the intersection of digital technological tools and democracy? I think the funding and the motivation of any uh, research and even commercial product should be as transparent as possible. And this is the best way to guard against sort of um, malicious or harmful uh, effects of technology. Whatever ethic you might have, whatever racial goal or or desire you might have, maybe maybe you're like, you know, into Bitcoin or NFTs and it's a matter of like I don't know ownership, or or it's just a matter of making money uh, by having you know c creating a, a artificial scarcity or some whatever it is. 
if that is known ahead of time, at least people can make up their minds and opine on it and reject it or accept it with clear eyes. And so in my opinion, having that the sources of funding and motivation and circumstances where uh, such, a, such an idea came to being is very important. So that's why, I mean, that's, it's a big difference between academia and industry. In academia, research is published and anyone can go read it, go figure out, you know, who is behind it and what's the reason they came up with it. And it's not proprietary for the most part. And so people can, can judge it on their own. But lots of innovation, quote unquote, is coming out of Silicon Valley or other, you know, companies that their motivation and their, and their genesis is completely unknown to the public. And this is very, very dangerous to me. Uh, so you have, you know, you have lots of companies that are t- completely unprofitable, right? I mean, this has been the case since since the first tech bubble, and still investors are putting in so much money into them, and they're continuing on being non-profitable, unprofitable because there is a value in the information that they're gathering. I mean, think about the information that Uber has on on, on citizens. Uber is a uh, co- company that's not profitable, or DoorDash, or something like that. I mean, I I go back to something Noam Chomsky said a long time ago. He said that uh, you know most people think that you buy New York Times, you're paying fifty cents for the news, but really what's happening is that New York Times is selling you to the advertisers, right? And it's a very simple formulation in, in there's something that probably doesn't apply anymore because we don't really have newspapers anymore, but it's actually exactly what's happening in Silicon Valley. So you might, you might think that Uber, you know, uh, maybe has great prices or DoorDash has great prices or things like that. And maybe it's a bargain for you, but really what you're giving up is part of your information. You know, just a small, you know, drop in the ocean for them that adds up nevertheless to something extremely insightful that can be monetized and will be monetized. And, and the market is saying they will be monetized. And that's the reason they're, they're continuing to have uh, record stock prices. Yeah, I think all of that comes from the fact that we don't really know what they plan to do with it. And if that was made public, at least we'll be going into it with open eyes. Are you optimistic that digital tools that increased transparency will make Silicon Valley more equitable, more ethically minded, that these digital tools that increase transparency will make our democracy become more functional, make politics become more ethical? What's your take? Well, I certainly don't think that if we do, you know, these three tools and two years from now, everything will be great. Like, that's not what I think at all. Uh, I think it's going to be a ongoing sort of arms race. There's an ongoing arms race of the general society, like the majority of the people gaining some some kind of insight or leverage on what the powerful are doing, what the what the legislator is doing or what the what the powerful industry is doing. And then the industry sort of shifting itself to slightly different different methods so that it's a little less transparent. And then we'd have to continue with the arms race. But I think that's a good trajectory to continue on. It's certainly better than not doing it. So I'm not I'm not a sort of a wide-eyed optimist, but I do think over like, say, 50 years, uh, it would be the right trajectory to try to fight back using the same tools that are used to essentially uh, monetize people without their knowledge. A lot of undergraduates listen to this podcast and they are trying to understand what the next generation of technology will look like. What advice, ideas, feedback, guidance would you want to give that next generation of humanists and technologists as they move forward from their undergraduate career to careers that will inevitably engage with technological products, technological ideas, and technological ideation? What would you want them to know? I would encourage them to 
engage and understand with big corporations, but don't necessarily think that that's their only option for a career path. For example, here at Cal Poly, internships are huge. Almost every computer science major has internships at like Amazon or Facebook or Apple or places like that. And I think they're great because they pay a lot. And that's that's a really good thing. If you're a your student on, on financial aid, you don't, you don't get anything. And it's a great way for you to be for you to understand what they're doing, to really become familiar with their with their um, technology stack and everything. But part of the goal that they have is to sort of groom you for a long-term career at their long-term career in like the entire ecosystem. Because, you know, these days, long-term careers, like three years, right? Like in any of these uh, Silicon Valley companies, the joke is that people just, they go in, they leave one company, go to the other, go back to the first company, make like twice as much as they were the first time and so on. That job term, you know, that jo- that long-term job security is also um, degraded and that's maybe a different discussion. But I would say, don't be afraid to learn as much as possible. Even if you don't like their business model, it doesn't hurt to learn what they're doing and understand their tooling. But don't think that working for them afterwards is the only option because I think there is an interest in large corporations, especially the ones that hire a lot of interns. For them, it's not that much money to spend on interns. But one of the things they're betting on is that you will come back and work for them and their competitors are going to be denied your your talent, first of all. But then you kind of be into this ecosystem where you're kind of like, this is your life now. And uh, one, of the, one of the things, I mean, it was very difficult for me. I was in the industry before I came back and got a PhD and became a professor. I worked for Intel. And it was, it was very difficult decision to come back to a professor's salary after I was, I was you know, like in a, in a tech person's salary. And so, um, but I did it because I, you know, I thought that I thought that this is more in tune with, with what I want to contribute and sort of like, I I like the sense of freedom and control over my immediate surroundings that academia offers me, which many people don't have in Silicon Valley. Although I am encouraged of the fact that companies like Amazon, companies like Google have workforces that are kind of conscientious and are, you know, asking for work-life balances and, and better conditions and things like that, which... In my day, when we were working for tech companies, that's not something you did. You know, you worked all the time. When there was crunch time, you worked crunch 10 hours, 10 hours a day, whatever it took to get the product out. And you were, you know, the understanding was that you should be happy and thankful that that's what you have. So I'm glad that situation has changed. That's my basic advice is that to keep your options open. There are many other things you can do. You can do nonprofits, you can do startups on your own. Just don't feel like you have to be in this ecosystem. Thank you very much, Fahad. Sure.